The evidence that marriage makes you happy is trash. We're undergoing a global rise in single living. One out of every two Americans is unmarried. This is a global phenomenon. Europe, Asia, even in developing countries, you're seeing more people living single and living well. There is nothing wrong with being single. That's right. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> I ask that of, I ask that of uh, myself every time I do a mushroom <laughs> trip. Um, <laughs> <laughs> It's a worthwhile question. Uh, I'm Peter McGraw. I am a behavioral economist. I am a professor of marketing and psychology at the University of Colorado Boulder. I am a 53-year-old lifetime bachelor who has uh, stumbled into the solo movement, leaving behind uh, 15 years of research on the question, what makes things funny? So listening to myself, it sounds like I'm on many things. It seems like it. And well, I, I was thinking about it before we started, like which one of the many things I want to unfold. And mm -hmm. I think the most appealing start uh, for starters is the solo movement. Our of podcast. Course. You yes. have a podcast about the solo uh, movement as well. So mm -hmm. I'm... I'm curious to hear your thoughts about this and what is it, the solo movement that you're talking about? Yeah, certainly. So um, we're undergoing a global rise in single living. Uh, so, well, the numbers are actually rather striking. Uh, one out of every two Americans, for example, uh, is unmarried. So they're single, divorced widowed or separated. And um, that number is way, way up since 1960, where 28% um, of the population was single. And um, nearly everyone would go on, over 90% would go on to eventually get married. So um, in not that long a time, we've seen this striking rise of singles. Uh, this is a global phenomenon. You're seeing this uh, in Europe. You're seeing this in Asia. You're seeing this even in developing countries. Um, essentially, anywhere that, that is experiencing some growth, um, anywhere that is giving women equal rights in particular, anywhere that you're seeing innovation, uh, you're seeing more people uh, living single and living well. Now, the solo movement is... Um, a conversation about those singles and about changing the narrative around. It's about there is nothing wrong with being single. <laughs> That's right. That is not even, not even that there's nothing wrong with it, that there are great opportunities in single living and that for some people that is the best life for them, either for now or forever. And so I like to use the term solo and we can talk more about it to differentiate um, life as a relationship moniker, whether you're single, married, divorced, widowed, uh, and so on, versus an identity around the individual who may or may not eventually partner up. So 
you personally choose to not get married, but you have a relationship, you had relationships in your life. How does it work, you personally? Me personally, um, I'd say I have undergone a transformation. Um, so I, I like to say there are four types of singles. So the typical single person I call a someday single. That is that they believe that someday they'll meet their person. Someday they'll find their soulmate and that they will couple up and they'll partner up in a very particular way. They'll, they'll ride the relationship the, escalator. The movie way. The movie way. Yes. Like the notebook <laughs> and all these kinds of movies. Yes, exactly. And, and, you know, for many people that works, right? But we know that it doesn't work totally, right? We know that infidelity rates are not trivial. Uh, in the United States, one out of every three marriages eventually ends in divorce. And so even though this institution of marriage works well for a lot of people, and it certainly serves society very, very well, more so than the individual, um, that some people struggle with it. Now, some people struggle finding it, right? The some days are kind of hopelessly waiting and hoping to, to get this thing, and it may or may not work out for them. Now, that's the traditional person, but the remaining types of singles I refer to as solos. So there is the just may solo. And the just may solo wants to find their person, but the way they feel about that process is much different, right? So, so solos have these three attributes. One is that they tend to be autonomous. Right? They, they tend to, to um, be very self-reliant. That is that they take care of themselves or a good parent to themselves. And they don't need someone to come along and take care of them. Two is they, they see themselves as a whole person, as complete, not half of a, of a whole. Right? And so as a result, they don't feel less than in their singlehood. And then the last thing is they tend to be unconventional thinkers. That is that they tend to see the world differently. They don't just necessarily accept the norms of society. So to go through this again, a solo feels wholehearted, complete. They embrace their independence and they tend to be an unconventional thinker, either about relationships or even beyond. So the just maze are much more comfortable with their pursuit of romance they can be a little bit more relaxed about it. They're not desperate. They're not feeling less than. And so they may be hopeful, but they're not feeling hopeless. They don't feel like their life is less than if they never meet a partner. So that's the second type of single. The third type, I have been at various points in my life, and I call that the no way solo. So these are people who are not interested in dating or a romantic relationship at the moment. Um, this is a huge number of people in the United States. And my intuition is that single people around the world, there's an, a large number of them. So in the United States, as I said, one out of every two adults is single. One out of every two of those single adults are currently not interested in dating or a relationship at the moment. This is a Pew Research Center study that's been replicated many times. And so these no way 
um, solos, they're mainly focused on other things, right? They're building businesses. They're going to, to graduate school. They've got a podcast. They have a new business. Um, they're, they're moving to a new city. They're, they're caring for an, an elderly parent. They're um, donating their time and energy to the community. And the list goes on and on there. And so, um, so the majority, most of these no ways are either doing something more important than a relationship in their eyes, or they just happen to like being single. Uh, so there's a, a researcher and singles advocate named Bella DePaulo. She calls these people single at heart, that their best state of the world is as a lone person, but not necessarily um, without connection, right? So to be a no way solo is, does, not, does not mean you're not connected to your family, does not mean you're not connected to your community, does not mean you don't have friends, um, you actually, in many cases, singles have more friends, are more involved in their community than non-singles. So I've been in no way at various times in my life. You know, when I was working on my PhD, I went through large swaths of time where I, I wasn't actively dating, wasn't looking to date. And if someone came along, I probably would have said, uh, no, thanks. Not for now. Um, the last group is a, um, it's kind of the sexy group. They're the small um, but growing um, faction of singles that are interested in dating a relationship, but they don't want the norm. They don't want the standard. Okay. So let's back up if I can for a second and talk about what that norm is. All right. So you're familiar with a marriage, fairly universal concept. My parents, my parents were married. Your parents were married. Mine were, <laughs> mine were married for a short period of time. They made about, <laughs> they made about 10 years. Um, so, <laughs> um, yeah, most people marry, especially globally. But when you think about it, a marriage is a very specific type of romantic relationship. It has very clear rules. And many of these rules are cross-cultural. So let's go through what through the rules very quickly. So the first rule is is just assumed and it is sexual and romantic monogamy. Right? That is that it's a closed relationship. That is that the two and only two people are allowed to have sex and romance with each other. To do so with anyone else would be a breach, would be infidelity. Right? Um so that's the big rule. And by the way, once that monogamy starts, it can never stop, right? It has to go till death do you part. Right. As a quick aside, um, it doesn't guarantee sex or romance within the relationship, but it certainly guarantees that it doesn't happen outside of the relationship. <laughs> but that's a whole nother story. We can talk <laughs> about that if you want. Second rule is hierarchy. Right. That this is supposed to be your most important relationship by far. Right. It, it's more, it becomes more important than your relationship with your siblings, with your best friend, that this person, a husband, a wife, ends up having, in many ways, a lot of veto power over your life. Right. They get they often get to say what you can do and what you can't do in a way that no one else can. No one else would dare to. 
in a sense, right? No one ever goes, you know, I'd really like to go on that vacation, but let me check with my sister. But, the, you know, they regularly say, let me check with my husband. Let me check with my wife. Kind of thing. Um, so this notion of status, this is a um, pedestal-like relationship. And then the third rule is merging. That you merge your lives together. The two become one. Right? And, that, and that happens in three ways. It happens, you move in together. You literally merge your lives. You know, you live in the same house, same apartment. You share the same bed, typically, uh, and so on. You don't share the same toothbrush. At least I hope you don't uh, in that way. You That's where your, your light- science on the humor kicks in. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, continue. <laughs> <laughs> so the um, so the next is you you merge your lifestyles. Right. So you don't just live together and you, you merge your finances, right? You share bank accounts and, and so on in this way, but you merge your lifestyles. You start to vacation together, do things together, have the same hobbies, go out together and so on. Um, and then the last thing is you merge your identity. You start to see yourself as a whole with this other person. Um, so, um, I, I call it the Benefer effect, right? So, you know, Jennifer Lopez and um, Ben Affleck become Benefer. Um, actually, he's become Benefer like three different times because he tends to date women named Jennifer. <laughs> so um, so these are these are rules. They never get discussed, right? No one ever goes, so, honey, when we're married, am I going to be the most important person in your life? Right. That doesn't happen. It just is assumed. It's just part of the rules. And it's taught to us by our parents and it's taught to us in schools and it's taught to us by Disney and by all the by the notebook and all these uh, other places. So so the new ways. Well, let's just step back. Remember, the some days want that relationship. They want what we call the relationship escalator. Right. This till death do us part hand in hand um, rule rule following relationship. The just maze want this too. They just feel different about the pursuit. And then the no ways are like, no, thank you. I'm not interested in that. Well, what are the new ways doing? And this is something that I consider myself to be part of. I, I realized I was a new way kind of rather late in life. I had, um, I had girlfriends I dated but I never wanted to live with anyone and I really wasn't interested in having children. Um, but when you live in a world where everybody expects to live with their partner eventually, and most people are planning to have kids, it becomes very difficult to date because you go out on a date, you're attracted to someone, you have good chemistry, you like each other. And then Um, at some point in the relationship, he or she says, I want to move in. And if you're in my situation, I say, I really like living alone. And that causes, as you might imagine, a lot of conflict, a lot of heartbreak. And that person is not able to get what she wants, right? Which is the full escalator experience, the full merging merging Peter and her together into one. And I find myself reluctant to do that in part because I like my solitude in part because I 
have very diverse interests that I want to spend time and energy doing. And whenever I have a steady girlfriend who's occupying a lot of time, I feel a bit encumbered, to be honest. Can you explain me a bit more the feeling that you feel the, the, and the reason why you don't want another person in, in your life? Well, it's not that I don't want another person in my life. Actually, I have... Waking up in the morning, I mean, with you. That's right. Yes. Why <laughs> is that? You know, that's, um, that's a challenging question, right? Because no one ever asks the opposite question, right? Which is, why, do you, why must you wake up next to someone in the morning? Why do you have to spend every single night with someone, right? Like, why is it that you, you need that? In that way. Um, but my best answer to that question is that I, or, you know, early in my life, I didn't have very good success dating. And um, I ended up learning to really like myself and like my company and developing big groups of friends, some of them very close friendships. Um, and I ended up doing a lot of things that that required solitude. I ended up getting a PhD, which required hours and hours in the lab alone, looking at data, reading papers, writing, and so on. And I found all these other fulfilling ways to spend my time. And when I would often go home from those challenging endeavors, I liked the solitude. I liked the quietness that was there. I liked the control over my schedule. I liked um, doing what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. Now, as I said, that didn't stop me from being attracted to women. It didn't stop me from dating, but it it created a limit to as how far I would be willing to go. And um, and so for me, it just works, right? It just fits better in the same way that some people. And I remember this. I had a girlfriend, and she was absolutely wonderful. She was bright and fun, and we had a really good relationship. And she lived maybe like 45 minutes south of me. And I would often drive down to her and spend the weekend with her. So I'd get in a Friday afternoon. And then she worked starting at like 3 o'clock on Sunday. So I would leave at 2 to give her time. Thing, And she noticed and wasn't happy about how happy I was to be getting on the road to go back up to my house up in Boulder. And it wasn't because I didn't love her and it wasn't because I didn't like her and it wasn't because I had a terrible time that weekend. I just had a limit to as the amount of time that I wanted to spend, not just with her, but with anyone in that sense. And she said to me, if I could, I would spend all of my time with you. All of my time with you. And that's incredibly flattering, as you might imagine. Is not. <laughs> no, it wasn't appealing to me, but it was flattering. And it just it it wasn't again that she wasn't good enough. It's just that I you know, I loved my time with her, but I also loved my time with myself in that way. So, as I'm going out and dating people who want to have kids or want to move in, they want the traditional romantic relationship I'm just not a good fit for them. I call them sing singles by mismatch. 
by the way, what you mentioned now, yeah. it was exactly the reason that I broke up with my girlfriend. She wanted to move in with me. And that's where I felt that, no, this, this is too much. Goodbye. I want to focus on my career more. I want more time. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I have had that situation happen. And I think it's a difficult one because I'm guessing that your girlfriend was great in many other ways. And um, yes, yeah, so, yeah, I was waiting for you to say yes. <laughs> so, but the, so what I do now, and if I may give you or anybody listening some unsolicited advice, is now when I go out on a date and the topic of dating comes up and what we want and so on. I say, um, you know, I just want you to know that I'm not interested in living with a partner, no matter how wonderful she is. Now I'd be happy to live close by and so on. I would be happy to, you know, spend some time, you know, like, uh, overnight and so on, but I don't want to reside in the same household. And what's really interesting about that is some women say to me, oh, I want that. Um, you seem like a nice man. Good luck to you. Right. And they appreciate the honesty because they don't they don't want to be in a situation where a year and a half later they say, I want to move in. And I say, no, thank you. Right. I've had other women reach across, across the table and give me a high five. They're so excited by that. That um, that proposal or anti-proposal, and then I've had other women who have just, with great curiosity, asked the same questions that you've asked, which is, why, you know, what's that like? Where is that coming from, and so on. And so I find all three of those scenarios to be really positive, um, and I find that people will often surprise you because they, they now know how to treat you and, and how to, so I have had those situations with a woman who, who's looking for that, you know, we end up becoming just friends or maybe we become friends with benefits, right? Or maybe we date for a little while even still, and then it just fizzles out. Um, and so all of those I consider to be good outcomes because I'm not looking for the escalator right? A short relationship that's meaningful is still meaningful. I don't, I don't judge the goodness by its length. So, so, so what the no ways are doing is they're removing or relaxing the rules of the relationship escalator. So for example, maybe they are having a platonic partnership. So they're removing the sex and romance totally. But they live together. They have hierarchy. It's their most important relationship. Maybe they're doing friends with benefits, right? So they are removing romance, but keeping sex and having friendship. But they're not moving in together, right? Maybe they're um, polyamorous. So they're having multiple romantic partnerships that are um, non-monogamous, and so on and so forth. There are dozens of these different situations that, that people are doing. So I call them no, the new way, excuse me. I call them new way singles because they're doing relationships in a new way. 
And what, what I think is very exciting about this, that if you live in a world where there's only one relationship, the equivalent of marriage, or being single, if you're tr- trying to make that marriage work, but it doesn't work because it's not exactly the right fit, it's very easy to think that there's something wrong with you. But when you're able to choose from a big menu of relationships and you're able to successfully find and develop a particular style of relationship that works for you, you no longer think that there's something wrong with you, right? Now you just realize that there was something wrong with the, with marriage, a traditional marriage, but there's not something wrong with one of these other versions for you. You know, this, I think, we're suffering as society, honestly, of this problem. I think this is one of the biggest problems uh, ever now uh, in the world. And that's why I wanted to discuss this, this with you, because if you ask anybody, they want, they feel forced to get married. I was talking like, a couple of days ago with ultra, ultra successful person, and that he was, he is 38 uh, years old and mm-hmm. he just feel, uh, he's just actively searching for a wife that he, they need to have kids and he feels the pressure from his parents and all this stuff. And we have this, uh, this thing that, uh, these expectations that when you find that, then your life will be amazing, which mm-hmm. always expectations is the enemy of of any happiness in life. So we screw ourselves completely. Like this is like a game that we cannot win if we have these expectations and all this stuff. But uh, it's crazy. Now I'm kind of showing you how passionate about about this topic. But (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I appreciate your passion. Um, I think it's un- I, I think that it's unfortunate. Again, so we well, let's step back for a moment. Where do these expectations come from? Right. I think that that's an important thing to do. So um, it's important to recognize that marriage is an invention. It has not always existed, and actually, it's only existed for a fraction of human history, like, like Santa Claus. <laughs> right. I don't I think marriage came before Santa Claus, but not that much before. So marriage is about 5000 years old. Maybe it's like 4700 years old. I can't remember. So it was um um and it and so why was marriage invented? Right? It's an important question to be able to answer if we're going to try to figure out if it's really good for the individual or not. Because we know it was invented to serve society. So what happened was um, Homo sapiens had been living in hunter-gatherer tribes. And, uh, you know, your listeners are familiar with this, right? So these were small bands of kin and friends, basically. There's no strangers who um, were mobile and, you know, sought out, depending on weather and opportunities, um, uh, food sources you know, berries and nuts and so on, as well as game. And, you know, those hunter-gatherers mated. They pair-bonded, right? They had sex. They had children. 
they fell in love and so on. But they didn't have something like a walk down the aisle and a, and a father giving her daughter away. Um, it was much more relaxed than all of that. It also tended to be non-monogamous over time. Right? So it wasn't just one-on-one for an entire lifespan. So um, what happened was that, you know, hunter-gatherers have a real problem, which is how do we get enough food? And one of the amazing things about Homo sapiens is that we are smart and that we're able to invent. Some, some of some of them, that's sapiens. right, yes. Well, let's just say this. Some are smarter than others. And it's <laughs> the smart ones who do the inventing. And it does then the less smart ones use the inventions if they're smart. So, so we are cultural learners, right? So not only are we able to invent, which is really important, but we're able to then teach and learn, right? So one person can discover fire and then teach everybody else in the tribe about it, right? Now, if, if that person discovered it and was unable to, to, to um, teach it, or if others weren't able to learn from it, it would never spread as an innovation. So, um, one of, you know, these bright, some of the bright homo sapiens recognized that rather than, um, moving from place to place, looking for food, they could start to plant it and they could start to domesticate animals and slaughter them. And our hunter gatherers became farmers, right? And farming causes a whole bunch of problems to humanity. It's not a slam dunk invention, um, but it has significant upside with regard to this issue of food scarcity. But what ends up happening now is these small bands now stop moving. Now land ownership becomes an issue, right? You must, you must own the land that you till or someone's going to own it, right? Ideally you own it yourself rather than a king or a, um, uh, um, a landowner. And now suddenly um, communities grow, societies grow. They go from 100 or 150 at max to being thousands. And now, as we know, you know, urbanly millions and millions of people. And so you need a whole new set of rules to let these people get along, especially to create cooperation and harmony among strangers, trade partners, et cetera. And so one of the inventions, um, besides government, religion, et cetera, was the, in, the invention of marriage. And, you know, early marriages, and there are still countries um, around the world today that practice this, were arranged marriages, right? This was, these were not love marriages. This was a man and a wife were brought together by their families, that marriages were about alliances. They were about land ownership and about keeping land within a family and passing it on to heirs. And so suddenly things like monogamy becomes very, very important because you want to know that those kids are actually your kids, right? Who are going to get, you know, who are going to inherit, you know, this wealth and so on. And then you needed stuff like divorce, to be invented too. And you had to make divorce really painful because you didn't want 
these men usually to be like, all right, see ya. I'm out of here kind of thing. And so and leaving behind, you know, a wife and kids who can't fend for themselves. And so this gave rise to the patriarchy where men's work was more valued. Women's work was less, less valued. And it set off this whole chain reaction of, of cultural things. Some good, some not so good. It's there. So what I'd like to remind people is that um, marriages were made up, right? They weren't made up for the happiness of these two individuals. They were made up for the good of society. And those original marriages weren't always great, right? So a wife would hope that her husband would be kind to her and would not beat her, you know, because she was completely reliant on him, right? She couldn't have a bank account. She couldn't have a checking account. She couldn't work outside the house, right? And so um, what ends up developing with time, especially with the rise of industrialization, is the love marriage, is this idea that, um, you know, these are still families coming together, but, um, but the two individuals get to choose their partner, at least, or at least have a significant say in who their partner is. And as you might imagine, that was much better for the couples and especially for the women who could choose was a it? man. What's that? Was Compared it? to an arranged marriage. Um, a love marriage is much better, especially for the wife, because at least she gets to, to choose a man who she knows is going to be kind to her. In what context? Like do we, on data as well? Or do we have data to back this up as well? Like that on average, they are more happy when there is not an arranged marriage. By the way, I'm just questioning. I don't have an opinion. Yeah. I'm just questioning things. No, no, it's a, it's a reasonable <laughs> question. I... um. Well, so the evidence that I use for why love marriages are quote unquote better than arranged marriages is um, because of their popularity, largely. That is that societies, you know, that, um, that tend to be more progressive tend to have love marriages. And they, they um, uh, you have to remember that like arranged marriages have often have lower divorce rates. But it's because they're arranged marriages that they're harder to get out of, right? Because what happened was once love marriages started to take hold, now you really needed to divorce because when you married someone for love and then the love goes away, which tends to happen, Always. what do you have left? <laughs> right? So, so, so even though happiness within marriages went up with love marriages. So did divorces. So did divorces. Now the last form of marriage um, is a relatively new invention, only getting started in the 1960s. And some of this came again from, from, um, you know, greater equality, from self-improvement, from psychedelics, from just people being focused on, on their personal and professional development much more. And this is what um, a researcher, a relationship researcher named Eli Finkel calls the all or nothing marriage. And in this is a love marriage, but this person, your significant other, is supposed to be significant in all ways of your life. They're supposed to be perfect, right? They're supposed to 
want to go on the same vacations. They're supposed to challenge you intellectually. They're supposed to be sexy. They're supposed to be fun. They're supposed to do all the things that you want them to do, which, you know, to be honest, um, is a relatively new idea, right? Like, you know, um, the idea that like, you're supposed to go to yoga with your partner and they're supposed to help you study for their, um, their bar exam. And, um, you know, you're supposed to watch the same shows and you're, you know, I mean, all this kind of stuff, you're supposed to be a power couple, you know, my ride or die. Well, what's fascinating about that is that um, we've actually been seeing the ha um, happiness with marriage to be decreasing since the 1960s. This is just too much weight to put on one other person, right? You know, so think about it. Like when, you know, you're, you're single now, I'm assuming, right? So I'm, you know, I'm guessing proudly. proudly single, right on. <laughs> I am too. So, um, so, you know, it's like you, you might have a friend that you go out dancing with and you have a friend that you talk business with and you have a friend, you know, who you go exercise with and you have a friend, you know, I mean, you have a friend that you invite over for movies, right? So you have like four different friends for four different activities. You know this there. But when you're in this growth marriage, you have this pressure for your partner to do all four of those activities, even if he or she is not interested in the movie that you want to watch or doesn't like exercising the same way that you do and so on. And so it ends up being a lot of pressure, right? It ends up being a lot of pressure. So I want to, I want to indirectly answer a question, um, uh, or excuse me, a, sort of a, a comment that you had, which is all this pressure that's, that comes along um, to get married. So you have to remember, this is the norm. And there's wow, a whole I, I, I said that 15 minutes ago and you still remember that. <laughs> wow, you are amazing. <laughs> but, I, but it's one of these things that it, it's like, these are norms, right? So there's no law that says everybody has to get married, right? Um, now there are laws if you get married, but there's nothing that demands that that has to happen. The pressure comes from society, right? It comes from the big screen and the little screen and love songs. And it, it comes actually, I had a conversation. So I have this podcast called Solo, The Single Person's Guide to a Remarkable Life. I have a forthcoming episode with a, a guy who's a father. And he said, and he's a proud solo now. He's been married and divorced a couple of times. And he's very happy being single. And he's very happy being a father. And he said um, that he didn't even realize that he was teaching his daughter about the relationship escalator and teaching her to ride it. So, you know, when, um, like, let's say they're having a conversation about a rule in the household. And he, he would say to her, you know, when you're a parent, you'll better understand why I have this rule. And, and then it like dawned on him one day, right, that maybe she doesn't want to be a parent. Maybe that she doesn't want to have a relationship. He should not just assume, you know, so how many parents say, well, when you're married, well, someday when you get married, right, that this is the path that you ought to be on. And the reason they believe it's the path that you ought to be on, they, they've been on the path, their parents were on the path, all their friends are on the path, for better or for worse. Some it works very well for, some it doesn't work so well, as you know. And so, 
Um, we know so the government's it's reward. It's all about FOMO, you think? I, I think that a lot of it is that it just is taught to be the right path, the good path, the smart path. And it's taught that it's the happy path. And what parent doesn't want their kids to be happy? So if you believe that getting married is going to be blissful, is going to be wonderful, then you want your kid to do that because you want your kid to have bliss. You want your kid to have a wonderful life. Now, here's the problem. And that is that the evidence that marriage makes you happy is trash. It's really terrible. <laughs> To have against it evidence that the marriage makes you unhappy? No, I don't have that either. <laughs> I don't have that either. So, <laughs> so, so here's, here's the evidence. This is the best case that you can make, right? So let's suppose you're a researcher or you're a, a marriage advocate or um, you're your parents and want to make the case for why you, you and I should, should um, eventually give up being bachelors and, and find a wife. And that is this. If you look at a sample of married people, single people, and divorced people, and you look at their life satisfaction, what you find is that married people have the highest life satisfaction, followed by single people, followed by divorced people. Okay? So divorced people have the lowest life satisfaction. Married people have the highest Singles lay in between, but are closer to married than divorce. Okay. It would be very easy to then conclude that the best path in life is to get married and stay married. But there's a problem with that logic. And that is that this is a correlational design. There may be some other reason for that pattern. Okay. Now, First of all, I want to point out a couple things about these data before I, I, I give, give away the punchline to this story. The first thing is those differences between marriage. So you are sing- basically saying that you're a storyteller now. Okay. Continue. I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying my best. <laughs> I'm trying my best. Uh, so, um, the, first of all, the differences between married, single, and divorced are very small. Right. They're very small. Now they can be statistically significant. That is that scientists can detect them as real differences because these studies are conducted on thousands, ten thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. Right. So you have a lot of power in these statistical analyses. But, but the reverse of this is this. If you know someone's divorced or you know they're single or you know they're married, it tells you very little about how happy that person is. Because there's so many other influences on their happiness, right? Um, But by the way, did you consider that this is just a placebo effect because they think they're happy because they so in the movies that they're they need to be happy when they have ah. they're married? Okay, hold that idea. Okay, (laughs) hold that idea. You're gonna like this. I'm I'm sorry. (laughs) No, no, that's good. I'm glad, glad you asked. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to get the pattern in which married people are happier than single people, you have to remove divorced people from the sample, 
right? So if you put the married people and the divorced people together, so people who have gotten married, the advantage of marriage goes away in this, in these data that's there, right? So it's very convenient to just take the divorced people and stick them over here, right? So it's not a, it's not a fair test is what I'm saying. But here's the thing that's the kicker. This is so amazing. The studies that I've been talking to you about, they ask people at one group of time, excuse me, at one time, how happy are you or how satisfied are you with your life on balance is usually the way the question is asked. And then they compare the groups. But the ideal scenario, the ideal study would ask people, large groups of people at various times on balance, how satisfied are you with your life? Right. And then during those, that longitudinal study, some people will get married. Some people will get married and then get divorced. And some people will stay single that entire time. And what you end up finding is that married people who stay married tend to be happier before they get married. And People who get married and subsequently divorce tend to be less happy before they get married. So you're not able to show that marriage actually makes anyone happy. If anything, being a happy person makes you more successful at being married. And so it probably also makes you more likely to some, for someone to want to marry you, right? Because who doesn't like spending time with a happy person? And so because we're not able to run a true experiment, which is to randomly assign people to getting married and to divorces and to being single, we'll never be able to fully answer this question. But it doesn't seem to be the case that getting married makes you happy, except, except in one small instance. And that is that these studies found a slight boost in happiness that started one year before the wedding, peaked at the wedding, and then trailed off for a year after the wedding. So you have this honeymoon effect of a temporary boost in happiness that happens not because of the marriage, but because uh, you're getting married. It's all downhill after marriage. <laughs> Well, it's not, the good news is it doesn't get worse. You just go back to where you were before you got married. Yeah, what, what about the thought that I tell you that I told you about the placebo? They think that they need to be happy. That's why they are happy. Yeah. And I, you know, it's hard to know where that honeymoon effect is coming from. My guess is, you know, people are often very much in love at that time. And the world is really rewarding them for doing this. Mom and dad are happy. Their friends are happy. They're having parties. They're getting gifts, right? There's the excitement of moving in with someone. So there's a lot that's happening that has a lot of promise and excitement and a lot of like, you know, kind of slap on the back. Congratulations around this. And then with time, you just become a married couple and it just becomes normal. Yeah. 
I want to admit the first time that I thought this is possible to be to be weird in this way, not to have uh, the standard way. It was while I was listening the biography of Einstein because okay. he was me- he was mentioning that he was living in a different house of his wife. Yes, that's right. House. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, wow. Wow. <laughs> I was like so excited. I was like, this is what I want. I want to have maybe a family. I want to have kids, but I want to live in a different house. Yeah. I, I have a friend who says he wants, it's like, he says, I want my wife to be my neighbor. <laughs> but na- n- neighbor is very close, maybe. Maybe a 45 yeah. <laughs> minute neighbor. Um, so this is very much a new way, solo thinking. Right. Like, so the average person thinks that's strange. Right. And most parents would be like, I don't understand why you don't live together. But, you know, imagine having a monogamous relationship, a high status relationship, but you just don't merge your lives. And I think for some people that that would work because they, they like to sleep alone. They like their alone time. They work a lot, you know, whatever that might be. Yeah. You know, and I believe, um, I'm mostly an outlier of society that I broke out of this, let's say, social boundaries. And I cannot even imagine how even me, I was having a hard time to imagine this life that I am like, I'm always going against the society. I'm always against the rules, all this stuff. And I'm like, I can't believe how embedded into our brain is to do that. So it's, and, and like, I'm 23 year old, I'm progressive, I'm like learning all this stuff. And this ne- never, ever, ever in my life, I heard someone that, yes, this is okay. This is, uh, there is not only this, uh, yeah, that, that's you, yes, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you say this because I I just finished a book that's coming out next year. And in the book, I write about when I was a a young boy, when I was a teenager, um, I knew one guy who was a bachelor, right? There was a guy on my street who, um, he was like in his late thirties and he drove a Trans Am and he grew marijuana in his backyard and everybody thought he was a weirdo because he was 38 and not married. And now I'm like, I kind of wish that guy was my friend, (laughs) right? Like, you know, um, and so I think that there are, look, you're going to have listeners here. Some of them are going to think we're crazy, right? They're going to think they're just like, these two guys are degenerates. They're Peter Pans. They won't grow up, you know, and so on. And I, I completely disagree with that perspective, right? Like, I am very much a grown up. You know, I have um I have a respectable job. I have good friends. I was the sole caregiver to my mother and you know until she died. Um I contribute to a community by way of this podcast and and uh, the podcast I'm on and so on. And so I can care for myself. You know, I'm um uh, I'm living a good, as I say, remarkable life. And just because I've not decided to take a life partner in no ways means that I'm not grown up. Right. Cause I know grownups, 
excuse me, I know people who are in marriages who are children. You know, the man can't feed himself, can't dress himself. He has no friends. He's completely reliant on his wife in the way that a child is on their parent, in a sense. You probably also have listeners who are like doing fist bumps and saying, hallelujah. Like, I feel seen. I feel heard. I thought I was the only person who felt this way. I thought I was the only person who didn't want romance. I, I felt like I was the only person who didn't want to live with my partner. I'm, I thought I'm the only person who, you know, wants to be non-monogamous. I'm the only person who, you know, is like not interested in dating. But, you know, what I hope is that they feel validated and that, you know, we can give them a language by which to be able to talk about these things and a comfort in being unconventional, right? Like in the world of entrepreneurship, the more unconventional, the better. That is being celebrated, right? You want people who think differently. Well, but then when someone thinks differently about relationships, we're like, ew, oh, that's scary. That's bad, right? And I'm just like, well, if you're willing to question the rules over here, shouldn't we be questioning all the rules and deciding which ones work for us and which ones don't? <laughs> and so my feeling is this, is if you're not causing harm, and if you have consent among two adults, you can do what, whatever else you want, right? Who am I to say who someone should be having sex with or not having sex with? Who am I to say that a couple should live in the same house or share the same bed, right? You know, I, I, don't, I don't get some say. It doesn't hurt me whether someone does something different or not. And so then don't do it to me is what I'm saying. It's like... You really can't tell me what's good for me. I've got 53 years of experience living a really great life. I'm comfortable making decisions for myself. Yeah, it's important though to to really dig deep because uh, in yourselves or everyone and not just uh, not to not I had been motivation uh, speaker and I had been giving advice for people because everyone is different. But is if you truly understand yourself mm -hmm. and you see think that your life will be better shared with a household and growing kids the conventional way, then do that or try it in a small scale to see how it feels and how you feel and yes. or. I was I was living with uh, my girlfriend, uh, the previous girlfriend, not the one that I told you, and that I consider that a very growth experience, but probably one of the most horrible uh, moments of my life. <laughs> Hopefully she's not watching. <laughs> if she's, she might be hate watching right now. But it was at that point that I understood myself that there's something wrong with when I go back home, when I go. So what, I, what I'm just saying is like, it's worth digging deeper who you really are inside yeah. you and just designing reverse engineering the life that you want. So testing a lot of things. Yeah. Just wanted to say that, that everyone is different. And we're on, we're both on the extreme far left on the side. Yes. So, so not to think that if you are, if you want the life, 
with a, a girlfriend or, and to get married and to have children, there is something wrong with you. No, I actually, I agree. I agree with that sentiment. I actually, I like to say I'm not anti-marriage. I think it's over-prescribed. So I think marriages work very well for a lot of people. And I think that they're good for society in general. I just don't think that everybody, I don't think they're made for everyone. Right. So, I, I, you know, they weren't made for Einstein. Do I really want Einstein, one of the greatest intellects ever on the planet, who has made such contributions to science? Do I want him doing anything that gets in the way of his science? And so um, I have to trust that his decision to live on his own was the best for him. Right. And his wife was probably quite taken by this genius of a man and was like, I'm comfortable doing this, that she didn't value living together as much as she valued her relationship with him. So I, I, have, um, I have a way to help people decide on the type of relationship that they desire. Right. So please, please, I beg you, <laughs> tell us. <laughs> so, so I want to say this. I want to echo what you just said, which is it is completely fine if you want to get married. But what I would request, and I think what you were requesting, is this really think about whether that's the best fit for you. And if the answer is, Yes, definitely. Then by all means, pursue it. But if the question is like, you know, well, I like these elements, right? But I, you know, like with my girlfriends, I never cheated. Like I never had trouble with monogamy with them, for example. But I just didn't want to live with them. And so to me, the fact I could have like, I could have decided like, okay, well, I'm going to do this. And then, and maybe I would have adapted and maybe it would have been fine, but I don't think so. I think I would have wanted more alone time. And I think that would have caused problems in the relationship. So how do you deal with this situation? Well, I think that the first thing is that for most people, the type of relationship they want is contingent on the other person. So oftentimes, like, let's say I go out on a date. I might want to have a romantic relationship with this person. But in other cases, I only want to have a sexual relationship with this person. Right. And it would be a mistake to enter into a romantic relationship with someone I only want to have sex with. Right. And so. How do you deal with that situation? Well, I, I like to practice what I call relationship design, where the parties involved co-create their relationship. That is, they talk about what it is that they're looking for, what it is they're not looking for, and they see if they can come to an agreement about what the relationship container, the thing that hold the rules that hold the relationship together is right so for example um I, when i go out on a date and if there's a connection there especially if there's a romantic connection there um i'll say listen you know i, I want to be i'll be completely honest with you i'll never lie to you 
Um, I do not want to have children. I've had a vasectomy, actually, so I can't have children. Um, moreover, what, what do you mean by that? A vasectomy. What, so, what is that? Um, basically, it's a uh, operation that keeps sperm from being part of your semen. Wow! So they like snip the vas deferens. So, not the most pleasant procedure, but male birth control, in short, kind of thing. Um, and that, so I did that because I never wanted to have like an accidental pregnancy in my life. Cause I was so sure I was a hundred percent sure that I did not want to have kids. And so, um, I also say, I, I, I'm curious, where, where is that coming from as well? Maybe you can touch later because you are so passionate about it. <laughs> well, you know, it helps to be 53, Right. So, you know, I would say when I was young, I never really wanted to have kids. I never desired to have kids. I, there were relationships where I thought I would have kids. I thought I might get married when I was in my 30s. Um, but I never really strongly desired it. Some of it was that, you know, my family life wasn't that happy. Like I didn't see how having kids would make me happy. Having kids did not make my parents happy, certainly. Some of it was that once I got out of the house and went off to college, I just wanted to do everything. You know, I wanted to be an athlete and I wanted to be a scholar and I wanted to travel the world and I wanted to write books and I wanted to, to um, uh, you know, I performed comedy. I wanted to just suck the marrow out of life. Mushrooms. And I just, yes, I wanted to do mushrooms. Exactly. <laughs> and I... um. I just, I just felt that for me to be a parent and for me to do it well was going to be a sacrifice for something I didn't want to do that, that much. And so, um, you know, that made relationships difficult, as you might imagine, because most people want to have kids eventually. Uh, most people do. And so, um, I just never felt like unfulfilled because I was, you know, I was always sort of doing these exciting things. Now it's very easy to feel this way because at 53, I, I don't want to have a baby. Like I don't want to be 73 with a kid in college. You know, I, I just don't want that. I don't want my later years to look like that. And so um, to me, that ship has sailed. You know, I just, um, and I made it sail by, right. By getting a vasectomy, right. I, I, I was, I drew a line in the sand metaphorically. It's there. So, so, but that's important though. Like, so, you know, a relationship design conversation might be something like, um, I understand you have a child from a previous marriage. Um, I, I don't mind that you have a child, but I'm, I'm not interested in ever being a parent to that child. Or someone might say, um, I, I think it's great that you have a child. I don't want one myself. If we were to continue and develop a more serious relationship, if you were open to it, I would be happy to help you parent. Right. So you get to basically you get to agree or disagree to what kind of relationship you want. Right. So you might end up having a friends with benefits with one person and then you might have a more traditional relationship with another person and so on. 
But the beautiful thing about relationship design is you could end up opting in to a traditional relationship, to a merged, monogamous, high-status relationship, the relationship escalator. As long as, as the two people say, yes, I definitely want that. Yes, I definitely want that. Yes, I definitely want that. And so this idea of opting in versus defaulting in is a major distinction. Is I think that's what you're suggesting, which is think hard about what you want at this stage in your life and then decide um, to try it out and unapologetically ask that of your partners and recognize that the more unconventional you get, the harder it is to find a good match. Yes, because my match that I'm looking for is to send only one email per month and meet every two times a month. But <laughs> uh, yeah, but, I'm, I'm not sure how, how many guests. Well, okay. So I, um, so first of all, I think that's great. Like, I think having that clarity is great. And I think people will surprise you. Right. So I think, you know, if you say to someone, listen, I find you very attractive. I really enjoy your company. Um, I, as you can tell, I already live a very full life. I've got these projects. I've got this podcast. I'm going to school. I'm helping out with my family at home, et cetera. And what I'm looking for is two nights a month where I have um, a really wonderful evening with you. And we go do fun things. We go out dancing. We go to the theater. We have great sex. Um, and I will leave you be the remaining 28 days of the month. And, you know, you'll do the same. And um, was that something that you'd be open to? And, you know, many people be like, no, thanks. I don't want that. But someone might say to you, that's exactly what I want. I'm, I'm in medical school. I'm, you know, I'm doing whatever. I'm a single mom and whatever, you know, whatever the reasons are, or I just like my alone time. Or maybe that person has another relationship and they want non-monogamy and they just want, you know, they want you to be a little oasis a couple times a month, a little bit of a break from the regular mon and mundane. And so, um, you know, I think that's a powerful thing to ask for what you want. And I think it's easier to ask for what you want when you have a lot to offer, right? Like if you're a boring date, right? <laughs> I, I say, I mean, look, I say this to men a lot. I say this to men a lot, you know? So if you're a young man, you're probably having a very difficult time dating, you know? So, so many, yeah, many I think men, there is a crisis probably. There yeah, is a crisis around young men. And but the, the and that's is, and that and that's why Jordan Peterson and Andrew Tate is like so appealing for all these young men, and they follow them so much because right. they speak to their heart. They do. They to they address are, their problems. That's right. So so Jordan Peterson, you know, I, a lot of people find him to be really disagreeable, and they don't like a lot of the things that he has to say. But one thing about Jordan Peterson is that he cares about men and young men know that he, he cares about them and loves them and wants the best for them. And he gives them a powerful message and he gives them an uplifting message. 
Now, I'm not as disagreeable as Jordan Peterson. Um, and I'm certainly not as um as controversial as he is, but I share the perspective. Well, here's I disagree with he wants young men to get married. He wants them to have families. What I want young men to do is to to engage with life. I want young men to build, to compete, um, to create, and to put aside consumption. Because here's the thing is, being a young man is just difficult. There's very few good role models. You're currently on, very on unpopular. Le, on Elon Musk. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And so, and, but what, what a lot of young men don't realize, straight young men, what they don't realize is this, is that if they work on themselves, they will eventually become appealing to date. Um, and, but what do they have to do? They should get some education. They should stop watching pornography all the time. They should stop playing video games all the time. They should start to lift weights. They should start to read poetry. They should start, you know, learn to play a musical instrument. They should travel and see the world, right? They should be, they should become interesting people. They should be able to have a conversation uh, about more than just sports and the, and Marvel movies and video games. And so the Petersons of the world and even the Andrew Tates are, are encouraging these men to go forth and build stuff and make stuff and become artists and become entrepreneurs and become, um, to become contributors to society. Right. And what ends up happening with that is that you become a better person and you, you make society better. Right. Versus just sitting in front of and watching, scrolling through TikTok all the time. And so the reason I bring this up is that if you're one of those men who works on himself, right, who takes care of his body, takes care of his health, develop his mind, becomes a, a strong moral character, is, a, is an honest person. Um, is fun to be around, right? Is sucking the marrow out of life. And again, I'm speaking heteronormatively, but like what woman doesn't want to spend time with that man? Right? What, you know what I mean? Like that's the kind of, you know, you ask women, what do I want in a man? They're like, I want a man who is confident, who is kind, who is successful, who's interesting, who's in touch with his feelings, right? She wants a man who has, who's masculine, but also has the ability to be feminine when he needs to. And so what I like to say is that if you can, you know, like my dating life has never been better than it is now as a confirmed solo in part, because I've done the hard work to understand myself, to maintain my health, to have a good career to have interesting things to talk about, to still be vivacious about life and so on. And so, you know, I, I am able to go out with women who um, maybe, you know, they would be open to more of an escalator relationship, but they're very happy spending time with me, even though it's limited. 
And so asking for what you want really works if you have a lot to offer is what I'm getting at. You know, if you're a happy individual, you're a healthy individual, you're fun, you're a good lover, right? Like, I mean, who wants to go out with someone who's boring, right? Who's someone who's not on a growth path. Um, and so I think that, that learning to be a better man and developing that and leaning into that ends up solving a lot of problems, both for yourself and then also for society. Another thing to add on this, since we are talking about being solo and being alone, I think, uh, uh, a side note, I, the happiest moments of my life is being alone, not with other people. Okay. So, uh, so other on, on that note, it's when you are alone, you become more interesting because you learn about yourself. Mm. You find out you become okay with who you are. And I think, uh, I think it's, it's a good challenge for everyone to do. I'm not, uh, uh, even for people that they are in relationships or even yes. if people that they are not in relationships that they are so to just let time with themselves to meet themselves, uh, to understand themselves. And that's how you start becoming more interesting because you understand who you are and all this stuff. And that, that if you are okay with being alone and you are not needy with being with girls, with being with other friends, with all this stuff, then your whole life is transformed because you know that you don't need all these people to be happy. Right. I, I really appreciate you bringing that up because I think that solitude is a powerful place to so but let's talk about loneliness for a moment before we talk about the power of solitude okay so um there are a lot of lonely people out there in the world they tend to be young and they tend to be old right so young people tend to be lonely because they want to have a relationship but they haven't yet figured out how to do it well Old people tend to be lonely in part because they've lost a lot of their peers, right? And they become isolated. Um, but loneliness is less about your relationship status and more about your desires. Okay, so, so let's go back to those hunter-gatherer days that we talked about earlier. The crowd, the group, the tribe was essential for survival. There was no such thing as going it alone um, back in the day. Because to go it alone, to be like, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm sick of you fools. You're, you can't survive. You needed the group to survive. You needed people hunting and foraging. And to do it on your own, you get eaten by a lion, right? It's just that simple. And so that is built in that warning sign that you can't get left behind. But we don't live in a world where you need the group to survive, right? Because if I get hungry, I can just order Uber Eats or I could open my refrigerator and cook some food, right? So um, 
you're now able to spend time alone in a way that you weren't able to through much of human history. Um, but it's the people who are alone, but don't want to be alone are the ones who experience loneliness to be alone and to be comfortable being alone is not lonely and can actually be really empowering as you've been alluding to. Right now, um, there's, there's research on this, which is having access to other people, to a community, to friends, to family, to a lover, is important. So people who are not able to answer the following question tend to have really troublesome lives, bad health and problems. And the question is this, do you have someone to call in the middle of the night when you're sick or afraid. So it doesn't, the question isn't, do you have someone in bed with you that you can wake up in the middle of the night when you're sick and afraid? Do you have someone you can call in the middle of the night? And I have dozens of people I could call in the middle of the night if I'm sick or afraid. Right? And I'm so not be, one of them. But you're not one of them. You're in a different time zone. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't work as well. That's a good joke. <laughs> but I, you know, and so I can feel very comfortable going to bed knowing that I can pick up the phone and call someone. It must feel very awful to be in a world where you have no one to call if you wake up sick or afraid. And so that's the defining difference, which is you choosing to be alone or being forced alone. And the people who are forced alone, my heart goes out to them. My heart breaks for them. But the people who choose to go it alone, whether it be all the time, like, or nearly all the time, like a hermit or a loner, or just part of the time, like someone like me, or maybe like you, I'm not sure which, where you're at, um, has these great opportunities. So one of the opportunities is that solitude is a very great way to rest and reflect and to re-energize. That is that people take our energy, especially if you're introverted and um, having time alone is a, a time to recharge, so to speak. Time alone is also very good for spiritual endeavors, for personal reflection, for understanding yourself and better understanding the world, right? So, you know, Great spiritual leaders from Muhammad to Jesus have, have spent vast times in solitude as a way to reflect and to, to develop spiritual insights. And so it's, it's very important that people have some time to themselves to just be able to rest and recover and to reflect there. Another place that solitude is super helpful is with regard to creation in in terms of making things. Most writers... Yes, when you are bored, you are creative. You are forced to be... Cre to Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's like, it's, it works like magic. When you are bored, it's like you create wonders. <laughs> yeah, it, it gives you time and space to reflect and think and to be focused... And so I, um, I just recently wrote a book and I wrote it very fast. Um, 
And if I was in a marriage and if I had kids, I never would have been able to do that. I was able to carve, carve out large swaths of time. Sometimes I'd go the entire day without seeing another individual. And it was just me in this book. And was I lonely? Never. Right? I was, I was never lonely. I was engaged. I was creative. I was problem solving. I was experiencing flow. And so this is something that I'd like to point out is that single people provide a lot of value to the world, right? They're overly represented as entrepreneurs. They're overly represented as artists, right? They're able to, to give their, their all with regard to scientific endeavors, right? Do I really want Einstein going on picnics? right? Going on vac long vacations with his wife? No, I want him making sure the formula for relativity is correct. What's wrong with picnics, dude? <laughs> <laughs> well, my point is, is there's nothing wrong with picnics per se. I'm joking. I'm I know, joking. but, but it, it, you know, the issue is this is, is like, again, you know, marriages and families bring stability to society. They help with growth. They're not bad. I'm not, I'm not advocating against it. I'm not suggesting that everybody should do this, but I'm saying it should be okay for someone to say, I don't want to do that. I want to build this business or I don't want to do that. I want to join the Peace Corps, right? I don't want to do that. I want to make art. And oftentimes those things um, are done better with some solitude in life. I want to I want to point as well because this is the first time that I found a person to discuss all this thing. Okay. I want to uh, I'm so excited to point out a lot of stuff uh, uh, that are happening to me. Like for example, when you are with someone, there is never time, as you point out, to do anything. It's like you're always full. <laughs> but when you are not with someone, it's like you have you are a lot more productive. So if you pursue a career that needs productivity. Is mm -hmm. probably, I'm not saying for me, I found that it's a lot more uh, productive to do that. Another thing that I found very, 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 very useful that I have the need to connect deeply with people. And I do this thing with the people in my team. So my company becomes a lot more strong because right. I, I, I bond a lot with them. Also, yeah. I, with my friends, I have a lot more time to bond with them and connect deeply. So my friends relationship, I am, I am giving a, a lot of impact. So kind of in a way, I found it that there is so much more benefit to that by being yes. alone to some aspects of life. So I'm a behavioral economist. And so I'm, let me get nerdy for a moment. Okay. Please. <laughs> So what you're identifying is opportunity costs. So what, what the average person is very aware of is cost, right? So, you know, this meal costs a certain amount of money, right? They're very aware of the cost of things, the cost of a new home, the cost of a car, the cost of a dinner, the cost of going to college, et cetera. But what most people are less aware of is the opportunity costs of those things. 
So the money I spend for dinner is money that I can't spend on a movie. Right? Well, the same is true for time. Right? There's a cost of time. Standing in this line for the movie theater has is, is a cost. But the time you spend going to the movies is time you can't spend writing your book, for example. Or to call back to Einstein, the time spent in a picnic is time that can't be spent on the theory of relativity, right? Unless he's daydreaming about it as he sips Prosecco. Well, we get back to that all or nothing marriage, right? And so the, the, the norms, the expectation is that your wife or your husband is supposed to be everything. You're supposed to go to brunch with them. You're supposed to vacation with them. You're supposed to go to the same movies. You're supposed to, you know, share meals with them. You're supposed to do everything with them or not everything, but, you know, most things with them. Well, there's opportunity costs of that. The time you spend with your spouse is time you can't spend with your best friend. Even though you've, you know, you've only known your spouse for a year, but you've known your best friend for 30 years. And so, um, what ends up happening is that uh, singles are free of the opportunity costs of marriage, right? And thus they have more optionality because they have more freedom to make choices because they're not beholden to this other person. Now, by the way, some people love being beholden to that other person and some people can't imagine doing anything else but spend time with that other person. But some of us, you and me at least, and I bet some of your listeners are like, yeah, I love having a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I just don't want that person to take over my life. I have but, other but, things but, I but, want to but do. But also on the other side that you're saying, what is the other feeling? The other feeling is kind of very interesting as well because the deep connection with that person is so strong that you feel that you own the person, that you feel you can tell them to do anything and they will do anything for you. So it's still a very interesting thing, but maybe it doesn't serve the goals. Well, that that's have. right. And that's why I, I'm an advocate for relationship design, right? So, you know, in relationship design, you never tell the other person how to behave. You ask if they're willing to behave in a way that, that you're happy with. They ask you to behave in a way that you're happy with, and you come to an agreement. That is a very egalitarian relationship. And what ends up happening, relationship design is built on design principles, um, which I'm sure you're familiar with, right? So you ideate, you prototype, you test, you iterate. And so what- Wow, amazing that you think that, like that about relationship, like business, which is not- the obvious thing to do, test, learn, and improve. <laughs> by the way, how you said that uh, you are advocated, advocate for uh, yes. relationship design. This is what yes. you are saying. I mean, I'm advocate of that as well. I, become a, I yeah. became a fan. <laughs> <laughs> High five. <laughs> but think about it, right? So let's go back to your your situation earlier. You said, I would like to meet someone and we have two dates a month. And I, maybe you were joking about that. Maybe you're serious. It doesn't matter. 
Let's suppose you're serious. joke at all. Okay. Two dates a month is too much. One date a month and one, one. two exchange of emails. Okay, so one date a month. So that's what you're looking for. You want 12 dates a year, right? Now, imagine you meet someone and you say, listen, I think you're great. I really love spending time with you. And this in no way reflects how much I like you. But I'm only willing to have one date a month. Right. And it, and it will only be with you. It's not one date a month among lots of other people. It's like, I would like to have one date a month with you, but let me just tell you, this is going to be a spectacular date, right? We are going to have, we're going to No, don't up. put expectations, guys. It's a trap. <laughs> say, say that that will be the worst uh, date of your life. And then you are going to be happy on the date. I'm joking. You're like, Continue. I'm going to save it all up. You're going to have, a, we're going to have a great date, right? And, and can you do that? And she says, well, do you mind if I have other dates with other people? What would you say? I don't mind at all. Please you don't mind at ahead. all. Okay. So she's like, she's like, okay, that seems great to me. Let's, you know, we'll do the second Saturday of the month will be our thing. Right. And then now, now let's say three or four months go by and the second Saturday of the month comes along and you two have a spectacular date, right? The, you, you, you know, one time you're going to a museum, another time you're going to a show, you're having a nice dinner, you're having a picnic, whatever it is. The sex oh is Oh my fun. God, bro. You are, you are old. This is not what we do as young people to have fun. Whatever. Well, okay. You go to a rave or whatever, you do Molly, whatever the, the thing is that you guys do. Now, what ends up happening with relationship design is let's say after three months, you sit down and you say, hey, I want to check in. How are you feeling about us? How are you feeling about our agreement? And she might say, oh, it's working out even better than I thought it was, right? And then she says, what do you think? And you say, I'm very happy with it. But I got to tell you, I really like spending time with you. Could we move to two dates a month? How do you feel about that, right? And then what she can say is, Yes or no, right? She gets to say, and suppose she goes, wow, two dates a month. Okay, I'd, I'd be, let's, why don't we try that for a little while? Why don't we do the first and third Saturday of the month now, right? And again, you're going to your raves and you're doing Molly and you're doing all the things that you guys like, to, you young people like to do <laughs> and so on. And, you know, after a few months you say, Hey, I just want to check in. How are things going? You know, are you happy with our agreement? And she goes, yeah, I am. Or she goes, you know, I think two dates is too much. I think we should go back to one date. And you go, okay, I can do that. Or, oh, no, I'd really like, you know what I mean? And so this is constant revision based upon collecting data, you know? And so... Maybe, you know, the reason that... And, you, and, you only... study, and you study as well a bit the metadata as well. It's like, how... How is that affecting our connection? How is that mm -hmm. affecting, uh, like, do you feel you have a need to have other dates because it's not enough? Like, do you, that's right. You know, and having the hard conversation always is the best idea. I, I became, I, I, I became addicted to the hard conversations. <laughs> they are the most fun to do. How did that mean? start for you? That I became addicted to the hard well, conversations. Well, how did you start having the hard conversations? Because most people avoid the hard conversations because they're so threatening. 
Uh, no, the, it's it's the best feelings that you can feel to uh, because it's oh, you're offending uh, the other person. You when you have the other uh, the hard conversation on the other side is the ultimate connection. When you are vulnerable and when you talk and you are honest about the things, how the other person is doing. So I try to never feel, uh, never. Uh, not take an opportunity for a hard conversation because there is so much connection and learning from, from that. And also yeah. it's just a bit uncomfortable in the beginning, but if you frame it in a good way, it's not even a hard conversation. If you say, I've been thinking about this, but I'm a bit skeptical to tell you and like, what do you think about, should I tell you? And then there are person or I, like I want to do it, I would tell you the most uh, horrible thing ever. <laughs> are you ready? And like they think they are going to have the most, and then is the is just an opening for a hard conversation, and and is and it's like the expectations that is the most horrible conversation. Everything is an upside after, so it doesn't seem like a hard conversation because I, I prepare them with this is the most horrible okay. thing that I can say. This is stupid stuff that I'm doing, but I, I think they work for me. Well, I, I will, I'm not sure I would use that particular strategy myself, but I do commend you for your willingness to have these hard, honest conversations. And I agree with you because I can only speak from like a heterosexual male perspective, but whenever I'm honest with a woman, she may not always be happy with what I'm saying. She, it may not always, we may not always agree, but she always appreciates the honesty. And, and respects you. She respects more me more because, because she's so used to being lied to that she goes, at least, uh, um, at least I can trust this man. And he wants to talk to me about these things. He wants to communicate these things. So it's so unusual. I had this happen recently. I've been, I've been seeing this woman. Um, she's from Argentina. She's living in the United States right now. And she's really wonderful. We see each other maybe once a week. It's, you know, it's a casual relationship, but she's, she's, she's one, she's great. She's just like, she's happy and she's fun and she likes me and so on. And I, um, one day when I saw her, I said, Hey, I, you know, I want to talk to you a little bit. And I, I, I just checked in, you know, I was like, so how are you feeling about, you know, us? Um, you know, have you had any sort of changes? Um, thing like, and she, she stops me. She goes, is everything okay? You know, she's like, is everything like, and I said, yeah, everything's great. I just want to check in. She goes, I don't, no one ever does this with me. Right. Like she's never had a man, never, ever had a man say, okay, can we talk about the relationship and how it's going? And so she was panicked. She thought I was like, maybe going to break up with her or some, you know, that there was some issue or, you know, I was going to drop some bomb on her. And I was like, no, no, I just, I just like to do it. I think this is important to do. And so I would encourage people, even if it's a little clumsy, as long as you're being honest and as long as you're being vulnerable, the act of doing this is going to often strengthen the relationship. 
not often always and if yeah, it's not going to and if it's not going to strengthen the relationship it will give you data that the relationship is not in the right direction to move so it's always the, a good idea to do that not all the time to be talking about that no but that's yeah. right it's not all the time yes <laughs> i i agree with that every time you see him it's not like how's it going now how's it going now is everything okay now is it, you know like that's that's not the case but but especially if you've had you know a little bit of you know again it's a it's a design process so it ought to be you know so if you if you launch a product right you pay attention to the marketplace and so and you you judiciously conduct market research you don't do market research every day and then overreact to every little small critique right you wait to see does some consensus emerge about strengths or weaknesses I I love I love your method that you are taking a relationship like a business uh, not not like a business but like the methods of improving a business and mm-hmm. uh, improving I will definitely use that going forward to treat also not it, it's a bit uh, not all the relationships maybe becomes a bit more uh, crazy when you do the relationship with your friend with other friend with your family will but yeah with the more intimate close relationships i think is uh, important to see them like that well, i but you know i would argue you can use these principles for any relationship so let's talk about um a relationship with a parent for example right So remember, there are norms associated with parent-child relationships, right? So one norm is you call your father, dad, or father. You don't call him Phil or Joe or pal, right? Kind of a thing. But you could both agree that you're going to use first names and you're going to call your father by his first name, for example, right? You know, and so... You could engage in relationship design, for example, if you're feeling a lot of pressure from your family about getting married, right? And so you could say, hey, I want to talk about um, how we interact around my lifestyle. Um, And to say to you that um, I'm happy for you to give me your opinion about my lifestyle, but I only want you to give it when I ask for it, can you do that for me? Right. And so then when your parents just out of the blue say, honey, you really should get married. You'll be much happier. You can say, Hey mom, or Hey dad, you know, I just want to remind you that I'm happy to hear your opinion, but not unsolicited. Right. And, and you can agree on that. And parents who love their kids, Right or going to say, okay, I'll give you my opinion, but I'll I'll wait for you to ask for it. Right, you know, in that way. Yeah, and it, so you it, could use these same principles, and you could just check in, mom, dad, how's it going? You know, like they could say, what do you, you think about our relationship as well? Like this is a big philosophical question. What do you think about our relationship? How yeah. we can improve it? Like, yeah, right. I, I never thought to do that with my parents or my friends. And we, this is more like the intimate uh, partner that you're searching. This uh, is more normal to do this conversation. Yeah. And I think the stakes are higher with those intimate relationships, but the yes. principles are the same. Yes. 
The principles are the same. You know, like, for example, you could, you, in the same way that you set up dates, right? You could have a conversation. Your parents are like, we want to see you more often. You're working all the time, honey, right? We want to see you more often. You say, okay, I get it. I love you. You know, uh, it's great to have a home-cooked meal. What if I come to dinner two, two nights a month, right? And, and I'll never miss it. Right. I'll make sure no matter what, no matter how busy I am, I'll always make it for at least two nights a month kind of a thing. Um, and then for them, they say, well, we'd really love to see you more often. And you go, well, I could we can experiment with three nights a month and see how it goes. Right. And, you know, it's the same kind of thing. And they can say, OK, well, we'll, we'll be very excited to see you during that time. And we understand you have other things going on. You know, it forces them to te- treat you like an adult, you know, but you know, that's, these are, these are all high stakes relationships. Uh, Since we are in the topic of uh, friends and uh, I am curious to hear also your thoughts, but since is the only time in my life that I found someone that understands me, (laughs) 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 I'm going to go ahead and say another bomb here that I find, I found that as men, maybe I'm talking about me. I'm not talking about anybody. As okay. men that I am, I find that uh, the most uh, interesting relationship, most satisfaction uh, of relationship, I, I draw it in my life from having friends, men, and like, yeah. and it's like brotherhood, brotherhood. So, yeah. so that's a lot. <clears throat> more stronger feeling to have to for me to know that I have friends and like that to str- to go hang out with my friends than go and so I, I don't know uh, do you, maybe we don't even need like an intimate partner if we have intimacy with our friends n- not in a sexual way but like uh, in a very strong uh, I don't know philosophical uh, uh, way or something yeah, no, I think, you know, so um, a lot of people rely on their intimate relationships for, you know, for their socializing, for social support, to um, to learn to be a better person, for their survival, right? There's all these reasons that a couple makes sense, right? But um, many of those needs can be fulfilled in other ways, right? So, so um, for example, f- you can learn from your friends. They provide you social endeavors. They can be um, emotionally supportive, right? Like, who do you call when you have a bad breakup? You often call your friends and they swoop in to, you know, help m- mend your broken heart. And so I, yeah, I believe that solos are not they're not typically loners. They actually are often have greater social connections. They have more friends than married people because they're, they spread um, the, the benefits of their connections across many people. Right. So I think the question really is worth asking, which is what makes a remarkable friend? What makes someone worthy of being a friend? 
And I have good news for you, which is I, I figured this out. And so, it seems like you figured a lot of stuff in your life. Huh? It seems that like you are genius. <laughs> I think uh, that's, you're being too kind. Um, but I've, I've thought a lot about these things. You know, I've, I've tussled with these ideas for many years. You know, I felt, I felt probably the way you feel at times, which is a little bit like there's something wrong with me for wanting these things because the rest of the world says, what are you talking about? I don't understand, you know? Um, so I, I actually think what's interesting is like, you know, friendships, you often know it when you see it, but you never actually think what makes a good friend. And I say that a good friend, and, and you tell me if the friends that you were just referring to meet these criteria. Okay. There's, there's three criteria. And, and I have my own as well to say in the, uh, in, uh, after you finish. Okay, good. I want to hear, I want to compare notes. So the first thing is that a friend brings value to your life and vice versa. That is that they make your life more interesting. They, you know, whatever, there's, there's many ways, you know, you have different friends for different things. They're funny, they're fun, they're supportive, they're smart, they're good company. And the idea is this, is that you, <clears throat> you believe that your life is better with them in your life than with them not in your life. That's a simple way to think about it. Is my life better with this person than without this person? Criteria one. Criteria two. I should say criterion, I guess. Um, they are high integrity. They are reliable. They are trustworthy. They show up when they say they're going to show up. They keep your secrets. Right? That is that you can trust them. Right? So to have a friend that you can't trust makes it very difficult for that person to be a friend. Third one is they practice compersion. So compersion is a word that comes out of the polyamorous community. It's called anti-jealousy. That is your friends are anti-jealous. That is that when they celebrate with you when good things happen, and they commiserate with you when bad things happen, right? So you get a new job and they pat you on the back. They're happy for you. They're not jealous that you got a good job. And when you get fired from your job, they hug you and they say, that really sucks. I'm sorry that happened to you. They're not happy that you got fired. Frenemies are jealous, right? A frenemy is jealous when something good happens and celebrates when something bad happens. So what I like to say is a good friend is they provide value, they're trustworthy, and they're anti-jealous. Uh, my one is just a, a simple way to explain all of this, which is effortless. Ah, that's nice. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. yeah it's, um, it's a relationship that it is interesting how we always talk about how relationships are hard, right? 
Romantic relationships are hard. Marriages are hard. No one ever goes, you know, you know what's really hard? Friendships are really hard. Yeah. You know, there's something about friendships that, and maybe it just has to do with like, you just have to have these three things and it works. Like I don't, I had a friend in college. Um, I remember, I remember, I, you know, I was, I was, um, I, you know, I was really on my own in college and I really relied on my friendships to, you know, bolster me. And I remember someone once saying, he said, Peter, you have some really weird friends. You have a high tolerance for weirdness. And I said, I do. I said, I absolutely do. I can tolerate a lot of weirdness. If someone's a good person, right? If they bring value to my life and if they're, they're not jealous. So I, I had this friend and he's a bit of a weird guy, you know, but he was a nice guy. You know, he had a kind heart. And I'll tell you this. Every time I called him and said, Hey, do you want to go do this? He always said yes. Like he was always there. And when he was there, he was 100% present, you know, and so did I always like see eye to eye with him or, you know, did I like, was he a little bit quirky? Yeah, sure he was. But I, that didn't bother me at all because like he was a good soul and he liked me and he was available and that goes a long way, you know, but no one ever says that about their, their, their person, their significant other, right? Their significant other has to be perfect in every way. And that puts just such strain. That's why I think you're right. Like good relationships are effortless. They're easy. Because in some ways they're, they, you know, they don't have to reach such a high bar. I ask every guest on this podcast, if I give you $1 trillion and okay. the goal is for you to have maximum impact positive impact in this world. How do you spend it? <laughs> I, I've never been asked this question and I didn't know you asked it. So I'm not prepared to answer it. You said $1 trillion. Hmm. That's so, that's an exciting proposition. Well, okay. I would take some of the money and invest it in the solo movement to get the word out. I would certainly spend a little bit of money on that. To, I, to, I would to hire work a with podcast producer, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but to more seriously answer your question. That was I, not serious. I thought this is serious. Oh, it is serious. But I mean, like, you, know, you don't, I don't, I don't need more than a few million probably for that, you know, kind of a thing. So there's a lot left over. I, you know, actually, I think that there's something very exciting. Well, first of all, I would retire from my job and I would, I think I would do something Bill Gates style. And so what I would do is I would put together a very smart group of people and think about what is the return on investment for that money and that I would make being a philanthropist a part-time job. I think that would be, and so the idea would be very targeted spends that were designed to help the most helpless people in the world. 
live a better life. I mean, I think the one thing is this is if you can pull people out of poverty, you make their lives exponentially better. Right. You know, and so moving people from middle class to upper middle class doesn't have the same effect as moving someone from extreme poverty into lower, low income. And so I think that would be the mandate, which is to try to eradicate poverty in the world. I'm sure everybody says something like that, but that's my, my I Bill stick to Gates it. St- Bill Gates style. So you you see ROI on investment on one project and all this stuff, how many people it will help and you give the money. Or, well, or yeah, maybe that, I don't know if it's always give, you know, it's that it's not giving a fish, but teaching the fish. It, it would be, it'd be very focused on the most impoverished people in the world. I mean, those are the people who are suffering the most. And, um, and so now I don't know how that would happen. That's beyond my expertise. I would end up hiring a lot of smart people. Um, to help with that endeavor. And probably you are not aware as well of how we end the podcast. It's a no, very interesting, <laughs> it's a very interesting way. I'm excited to hear your thoughts. So okay. you are going to die in one minute and you have this 30 seconds to broadcast anything to the world. So, uh, are you okay? Are you ready to do it? <laughs> I've got a minute to live and I got I have to spend it talking to strangers. I get it. <laughs> Not to strangers. If you want to say stuff to your uh, family. Oh, it's like, you know what it is? You- there's, um, have you seen, there's this movie Flight by um, Denzel Washington. Have you seen this movie? No, that's why he, I'm telling you you are old, bro. He's uh, I, I'm I'm happily 53. Uh, so he's a pilot, and it it there's a chance that the plane is going to crash, and he says to the lead flight attendant who's in the cockpit, um, he says, you know, he's like, talk to your son, talk to the black box, you know, and he gives no, her a chance to do this. So it's a very similar kind of thing. Yes, to do. Yes, yeah. And if you die in any way possible in the next five to 10 years, we can look back these 30 seconds and hear your words. Yes. <laughs> um, all right. I, uh, I'm unprepared, but that's, that's the way death goes oftentimes. <laughs> uh, you know, I, to be honest, I think I don't have that much to say. I, I've spent my whole life talking and writing. Um, and having private and public conversations with um, people I love. Uh, and I, th- I think that they best understand me from those moments. And that anything I say in my last moments of life should not hold any greater sway than the, the intimate moments and connections and the jokes and the stories um, that I've, I've shared with these people and the love that I've given them. And so all I really would do is to just simply say, um, thank you. I'm, I'm glad to, that I was able to be a part of your life. Um, and I, I thank you for sticking with me. Uh, and I love you. And uh, if there's anything on the other side, I hope to see you much, much later. Wow. I love you. Thank you for watching guys. Bye-bye.